well, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here. And uh, we have the privilege of having Barb's sister and her husband with us this weekend. So it's uh, fun to have family, being that we live out in the middle of nowhere compared to the rest of our family. It's a super treat to have family come and hang out with us. I, uh, a couple of people already noticed I wore my Ryder Cup shirt this morning. Not that it's going to do any good, but anyway, what it, uh, they'll give it their valiant try, but I'm afraid they're getting slaughtered. But anyway, that's, uh, can't win every battle that's in front of us, but uh, it's fun to enjoy those kinds of things as we, as we go about it. Let me just invite you to bow with me and let's pray, and then we'll step into the scriptures this morning. Gracious Father, thank you for your profound love and grace. Father, we spend all week kind of grinding through all the things that create tremendous pressure on our life. And we have so many things that, we, that catch our heart. We have hobbies, we have businesses, we have relationships that we love and adore, that we put time and energy into it. And yet, Father, one of the things that ought to be the most important relationship we have is the one that we have with you. And I think every person who names the name of Christ and calls you Father and Jesus as Lord and value the indwelling presence of your spirit have every intent every day to get up and to live in a way that honors you and yet somehow in the busyness and the chaos and the hectic pace of life, often you get easily pushed to the side. We don't do it intentionally, we get overwhelmed with life, we lose our focus, there's lots of distractions. And yet, Father, we want to be reminded this morning of how critical this relationship really is. As we step into Jesus' teaching related to what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, he lays out some things that we'll look at over the next few weeks that seem extremely stringent. And yet if we look at the other side of the coin, we discover like many things in life, there's many things that we can't afford to do and then there's many things that we can't afford not to do. And we pray that we would learn to value and cherish our relationship with you above everything else. For you are the one that has is created us and given us life. You're the architect and the designer of life and we ask that as even out of simple gratitude, we ought to be absolutely loyal and faithful to you. We pray that we'd learn to do that in the chaos of life and we entrust ourselves to the teaching of your spirit as we walk through this this morning. We give you thanks for all of this in Christ's name, amen. I uh, struggled this week knowing what to call this, to title it. I sort of landed on the idea of the call to discipleship. The problem is, is that when you use the word discipleship, we kind of clutter it up with our Americanized idea of discipleship. Uh, for some people, discipleship is sitting down between someone else and doing a Bible study. For others, it's a class that you know, a church might have, and we're going to do discipleship. It's a little bit like our catalyst training in the second hour. Uh, might add that Grant's standing in for me the, today because I have, uh, would really appreciate your prayers. I have a flight out to Ohio this afternoon. I'm there till Thursday working with some of our churches and uh, trying to speak into pastors' lives which I really believe is not my ministry, it's an extension of our ministry in terms of uh, leadership and that giving me the flexibility to be able to do that. But we have to realize we live in a very toxic world. And one of the most critical things is understanding our relationship with Christ can offset a, a weight of stuff going on in our life. 
And yet the hard part about discipleship is that we all have sort of this caricature in our mind that it might be a Bible study, a class, and rather than this deep abiding commitment to be a learner of Jesus on an ongoing basis. I think we understand the concept, it's just a little more difficult to get our heart into it sometimes. For the simple reason that our, there's lots of things during the week that have our heart. Mark chapter eight, starting in verse 34, says this. And Jesus calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And then to step into chapter nine, verse one, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it is come in glory. So Jesus not only calls the crowds around him, he calls his own disciples, which would seem to be a foregone conclusion like he's preaching to the choir, but I, at times as I read through this text, I don't think so. That Jesus has, uh, and is the person who calls people to follow him. The idea of a disciple is really the idea of being a learner. And it's tricky because we have sort of churchified the idea of being a disciple as being in small groups and going to church and serving in programs. But the heartbeat of disciple is, uh, at least for Jesus, is he didn't have any programs to plug him into. There wasn't too many small groups other than the real life one that he had with the disciples and so there was, uh, the only curriculum he had was to do it off the top of his head which probably wasn't a big deal for Jesus. But in the, in the, in the ebb and flow of this, Jesus tries to communicate to people the issue is not just believing there's a God or believing in Jesus. He's going to set the standard far higher than that in terms of really what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which in everyday sense for us is probably going to rub as hard as it would have for them. And so as we move through this, I want to just make some observations about some of the things that are here. Now, being that our sort of clarion call at Oak Grove Church is that we want to be a disciple-making church, this is something that we ought to value, at least certainly I do, and I know others do, about what the implications are here are of being what it means a true follower of Jesus. So I hope you can set aside sort of the caricatures or the ideas you think you have and just really willing to embrace the things Jesus says this morning because I don't know if you can walk through this without feeling it pinch a little bit. Uh, and so we begin with this sense of calling to a disciple, and there's really four components to it. Uh, well, I'll make some other observations as we move through it, but he says to the crowd and his disciples four things. If anyone would come after me, that's the first statement, and then he supplements it with three more. Let him or her deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The word deny and take are what we call in grammatical terms, they're aorist imperatives. It's a command. Jesus is saying, this is what you have to do if you're going to follow me. 
And it's not so much to think about it and give it 30 days of prayer and whatever. Jesus is saying, I want you to make a decision. I want you to make a decision about me and who I am and who I claim to be. Now we have to remember, and we'll come to this, is that Jesus, or Peter had just made this massive great confession about who Jesus was. And I will propose to you that nobody is going to be a true follower of Jesus unless they confess the reality of who he is and that he is not only the Son of Man, but he is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah that Israel was looking for, and that he is God in the flesh, as all those things that are implied by the reality that he is, he is the Christ. So it, it certainly will begin there, and we'll touch on that, but Jesus comes back and says, you need to... I'm commanding you that you need to deny self. You need, I'm commanding you to take up your cross. And then the word follow is actually a present active imperative. It means I want you to start following me and I want you to keep on following me as, as the ongoing continual habit of your life. So the first two are very much kind of resolving a, a decision, a conviction in their heart and in their head. And the reality of it is going to be that you really will follow me. Now back then, you have to understand the idea of a, a rabbi and a teacher was that they had full control over their students. They could ask questions and that was part of the nature of questioning, but the rabbi was the authority, you're the ones that learn from me. That was the whole nature of students. In fact, the whole goal of the students was to embrace their whole philosophy and teaching in such a way that they could replicate it. You know, today's world, you teach them something and they go, well, that's really too long. Can I modify this so that it fits my little tiny mind better? And the rabbis would probably say, no, memorize it. Memorize it, know it, dream it, let it sink into your heart. No modifications, no adaptations, no redactionism, nothing. I want you, I want you to get this. This is what has to become integral part of the way you think and breathe. So you already understand that the way they learn and teach is completely different than the way we teach and learn. These days a teacher will say, here's what I want you to know, and the kids are going, no, we want to learn it this way, we don't want to do what you want to do. And that's not really the tenor of what goes on here. But I also want you to notice the whole unity of what Jesus says, because Jesus doesn't present the gospel here like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. He doesn't say that I came to die on a cross for you and I'll be raised on the third day. He doesn't even bring that up in here. He just says, if you want to come after me, here are the requirements. And I, this morning I want to sort of raise the issue that we create a problem in our own theology that sometimes affects our behavior far more than it should. And that issue is, and for lack of better terms, let me call it this, it's the difference between how we think theologically about salvation and sanctification. And we can understand the difference between those two what we call paradigms. Getting right with God is really about the, the gospel, but it's about believing God in such a way that I put faith in Christ. It is about repenting and believing Although I'm sure there's some people who would say, wait a minute, what are you talking about repenting for? That's a work, so we don't do that. I'm not gonna have that discussion this morning. But the idea of believing in Jesus so that we can be reconciled back to God and have a right standing with him involves several things. One, it's not a result of my works. You've heard me say time and again that nobody will give God a resume of here's all the things that I did, 
here's all the religious traditions I did, here's all the works that I did, now you are entitled or obligated to let me into heaven. It goes on and it talks about where we'll be forgiven our sins and removed from God's wrath, about him declaring us right, and that's when God accepts us by adopting us into his family, and we see that as salvation. And there's an element that that's certainly true. And then from salvation, we move on to this process that we call sanctification. And in some theological terms, we see they're very different things, and yet somehow they're intricately related. Sanctification is a lot about teaching to obey all that Christ commanded. An unbeliever will have no interest in obeying what God commanded because they have to be changed at a heart level before they're interested. There's things like walking in the spirit that Galatians 5 talks about. Literally keeping in step with him. Faith without works is dead. So works can't save us, but if you're saved and there's no fruitfulness and works that come from your life, it raises questions about the quality of your faith. There are other statements that instead of being forgiven by God, we'd have to learn to forgive others. Uh, my book on the Lord's Prayer that we're working on is very high on the idea of learning how to forgive. It's, in a sense, an imperative that believers have to do, and yet, I would say, often very misunderstood by Christians in terms of what real forgiveness is. There's things like love the love of Christ is what compels us on why we do what we do. It's not rules and regulations. It is his love. There is set your minds on things above and love one another deeply and the unity of the body of Christ. And when you go around, you'll see that there's all kinds of groups that think differently about these things. If you come from a Nazarene background or Arminian, they're very strong that you have to do the works that demonstrate your faith. And there are some groups that would say if you don't do all the right works or you mess up significant, then you can lose the salvation that God has given to you. There are others, uh, Calvinists, would talk about, well, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. That's it. And so people make these decisions when they're kids and teenagers, like, okay, well, I believed in Jesus. That's all I was told I had to do. Now I can do what I want. And so we can all go back and make claims that, well, I accepted Jesus when I was six, and especially when people seem to go AWOL and abandon that faith, all of a sudden now we go back and hinge on that particular decision going, no, they're still saved no matter how messed up they are. And so the accusation that comes back against those groups is, well, you guys, all you, all you go and say is, all I have to do is I believe in Jesus and it really doesn't have to affect your life. And so the list could go on, depending on whether you're Catholic or Lutheran, there's all kinds of things that we hinge on to measure the quality of the decision whether a person is saved or not. And often that's measured by the sanctification process. So the question is, what is it that Jesus is doing? Well, I will propose to you that Jesus is not here being, giving a theology lesson. What I'm going to notice in this one is that he glues those together as tightly as you can glue them. And we're not used to that because we love compartmentalizing things. And so if you go back to this, you will discover that this whole idea of what words we would use, salvation and then sanctification, Jesus doesn't draw that distinction. If you want to come after me, and we'll walk through this in a minute, then you need to deny self, take up your cross, and you need to follow. We can separate that in lots of different ways. A lot of people say, well, if you want to come after me, they skip the next two about denying self, taking up your cross, and I'll just follow as best I can 
whether it looks good or not. Other people just want to stop after the first sentence. Well, if you want to come after me, yeah, I, I love your teaching. I, I, I want to come after the inspiration you give me because of your example. But the idea of denying self, taking up the cross, that's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. And even as well-meaning Christians, we start separating these things that Jesus glues together completely, and we think they're options. And, and it doesn't work that way. One of my favorite author, authors is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and I want you to hear his words resonate with what Jesus said. There's a comment, uh, uh, in one of his statements, he makes this. Only he or she who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. And what Bonhoeffer is doing is he's trying to sort of bridge the gap between Christians and individuals who say, well, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but their life doesn't reflect any commitment to literally follow after Jesus. There are other individuals who go, well, I don't know about believing in Jesus, but I'm doing all the right moral things. I'm living a good life. I belong to a community of faith, and I'm trying to be generous and encourage others. But yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I really understand what it means to accept Jesus into my heart. I don't know that. Bonhoeffer's trying to bridge it. Only he or she who believes is obedient. Only he or she who is obedient actually believes. Let me try to paint his understanding of this just so you can see it. If the first half of the proposition, the statement, only those who believe obey, if it stands alone, the believer is exposed to the danger of cheap grace, which is another word for damnation. And you'll run into all kinds of people who say they've believed in Jesus. I've made this decision, and it stands alone because we don't see the, any of the obedience part. And Bonhoeffer pushes us right to the edge of our thinking and our theology where he's saying, well, for someone who says they believe in Jesus and there's no obedience, that's the same thing as damnation. Of course, he moves to the other side where he says the whole idea of if a person who uh, only those who uh, obey believe, he says we're risking the idea that it's a work salvation. That if I'm a good person, if I'm a moral person, if, if I do things for others and I try not to create too much damage in people's lives, then God is obligated to accept me. And he says the same problem is here, is that you create this work salvation where it's all, it, it removes Jesus from the equation and even the need to believe. And if I just do all the right things, then I'll be good with God. James Chung is the Vice President of Strategy and Innovation for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We're actually watching this in our community group, so I, proved, I apologize to that crew because I'm going to repeat some of the things he said here. But the idea is, as he said, there's three things or pictures or movements in the gospel that we kind of get trapped in. The first one is that we need to see the gospel not just as from an individual point of view, but from community. If you think about the reality of it, there's lots of us, when we accepted Christ, we saw the personal need in our own life because of our sin and separation that I need Jesus for me. But what happens is, is that for many Christians, it sort of becomes a self-contained thing, that my faith is only about me and how it helps me. 
how it helps my self-worth, how it helps my sense of significance and security. And before you know it, there's years and years that go by that my faith is only about me. It's about my survival, my flourishing, my goals. The reason I go to church is to see what I get out of it. The reason I go to this class and Bible study is what I get out of it. And so they create actually a self-centered individual type faith that really doesn't break out to the reality that Jesus wants it to be relational with others. I mean, that's the whole point of belonging to a community of faith. I mean, that's what Jesus was doing. He was inviting his men to come out of the world and to join him, and he was creating this new group of guys, you could call it a small group, where you take a tax collector and fisherman and you're gonna say, you're gonna love each other. Sounds really easy until the tax gatherer starts finding and calculating all the little things you're doing wrong and the fisherman just wants to hang them by the nets. And so at the heart of this, there's lots of people who have come to this process that their faith is all about them and they'll actually do everything they can not to have to create space in their life for other people. I would contend to you and this is preaching to the choir and I would affirm you of it, why bother getting up and showing up on a Sunday morning to gather with other believers? Well, some people might do it out of obligation, but at the heartbeat of this, it's I need this community and I need to be engaged in this community to encourage others to find out their faith, to be praying for them, to serve alongside of them, because there's not a lot of that out in the world that I'm getting. But if people's faith is totally on their own, they may not see the need to show up. Like, I don't really need it. I got other things to do. I'm happy to do it. I don't have time. And so church is devalued. The sense of community is devalued because eh, I can nitpick it and get it other places. So that's the first movement that James Chung talks about. The second one is this. It's not just a decision, it's transformation. See, that's where our theology of getting saved is. Well, I made a decision for Jesus, and that's good. But then transformation, well, that's a lot more threatening. Because if you look through the New Testament, the focus of the power of Christ in us isn't to change everybody else and my circumstances. It's there to change me. And yet that's really hard because we have to deal with stuff that we learned from our childhood where people exploited us, abused us, and maybe said unkind things to us, and, and we've had to live with all this toxic waste in our life, and we have almost denied the power of Christ because this stuff is keeping us from experiencing his grace. And out of absolute fear about what other Christians will think, we don't want to deal with it. And so as he, he moves through this thing, it's not just a decision when I made when I was six, and I'm good to go, it's about transformation of my heart and life. If someone came to you and said, hey, let me ask you this. Share the, the last time you really experienced your own personal transformation because of the work of the Spirit. Tell me, tell me that story. What would it look like? When did that happen? And sometimes that's a really difficult question to answer. Because we're so busy doing things for God, we've forgotten that his greatest work is in us. And so 
He paid for the penalty of our sin, but Christ died to break the power of sin in our life. He didn't intend us to flounder around and struggle and be spiritually and emotionally crippled our entire life. That power was meant to change and transform us. And so as we begin to move through this, we discover that he has, that whatever the gospel looks like, whatever it means to follow Jesus, sometimes gets hijacked by things that we're fearful to step into and anxieties that we've carried half our life. So we want to come after Jesus, but we're terrified of deny self, take up our cross, and then follow him. And I want to reinvent, not reinvent, but reinforce to you the idea is that Jesus didn't do an either-or thing. If you want to come after me, you can deny self or you can take up your cross. Yeah, those are great options. That sounds really helpful. But it's easy for us to say, well, I want to follow Jesus. I want to skip the middle two and I'll do what I can. You know, if I get a really good devotional this week, I'll try to follow that. But that's not what Jesus is asking for. The Christian life is not volunteerism. It's fully committed to Jesus. I I want to propose to you the third movement that James talks about is it's not just about the afterlife, it's about a missional life. You know, when the gospel is often presented to people in our modern day church, we hear, well, if you receive Jesus, then he will give you joy and peace, and he'll fill your life. If you push it to real extremes, you get, he'll give you lots of wealth and riches and those kinds of things. And so we create this anomaly in our head that the Christian life is what we can get out of Jesus, what we can get out of God, and we start treating him like a concierge who's supposed to serve and and tender to my needs and my conditions. But when he called the disciples, he didn't say, in fact, a lot of it didn't even start with, I'll give you joy, peace, and patience. He said, if you come follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That, for Jesus, was the gospel, that we're called on mission, that we're called to invest our life as ambassadors for God and the gospel of Jesus to communicate the good news of Jesus to people who don't know him. And yet, you and I both know the tremendous struggle in our own heart that there's some believers who've never shared their testimony even with unbelievers, much less the gospel. There's individuals who spend more time hiding from unbelievers rather than trying to reach out to them with the good news of Jesus. And so we have to sort of think clearly about the reality of what Jesus is saying when it comes to being a disciple because on the bottom line of this, he's saying, listen, I'm calling you to mission. I'm not calling you just to give you a ticket so you can get to a spiritual Disneyland at the end of your life. That's not what this is about at all. And yet we've created reasons and excuses and obstacles why I can't do those things which denies the very reality of who Jesus is in us because he can't even change our heart to to care about lost people. And so it, it becomes a tantamount struggle for us. But I want you to see the unity of this from Romans. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, For in it, the gospel, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith into faith, which has some debate to it. But then he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by their faith. So in this very, he talks about this unity of the gospel, that those who are made righteous, where they've received Christ and be reconciled to God, shall then, being declared righteous, should live righteously by living by faith, not just a decision. And so there's an inseparable element that if I'm truly saved, there ought to be some significant sanctification. There ought to be some real changes some real power that touches our life. And so when Jesus walks through this text, I just want to point out to you briefly that he makes four statements and he follows it up with four reasons why we need to look at it. And we're not going to deal with them all this morning. In fact, we're going to deal with that over the next four or five weeks. But the one this morning, if you'll see, is he says, come after me, and I believe the parallel reason for this is that he says in verse 35, The whole idea is that if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for me and the sake of the gospel, then you'll save it. If you deny self or herself, then it's the difference between gaining the whole world but forfeiting your own soul. And then if you take up his or her cross, Jesus makes this four statement. He says, for what really is the cost of a person's soul? And then finally he says, follow me. And he has this very profound, sobering reality at the end of this text where he says, listen, if, if you're ashamed of me when I show up, then I'm going to be ashamed of you. And it's about that time that if I was part of the crowd and I was a disciple, I'm going like, okay, I really need to think seriously about this thing about following Jesus. Remember the rich man who came to Jesus? man, I want to follow you. I want to be on board. I want to go with you. I want to do things. And Jesus says, oh, that's cool. Well, I mean, he didn't say it like that, but you know what I mean. He says, oh, that's cool. All you have to do is go and sell all your possessions and come follow me. Really? Uh, You're kidding. What is that? Is that metaphorical? No, not really. That's like what I want you to do. Come on, that's not really fair. I can follow you and still hang on to my stuff. Jesus goes, no. You want to follow me, you go dump all your stuff and you come follow me. And what started off as deep, sincere desire to follow Jesus turns into absolute depression and sadness because he's going like, he walked away because he was super rich, couldn't part with it. Now, it may not be our riches, but there is a real threat to every single one of us that there's things in our life that we are unwilling to surrender to Jesus because we like to maintain our own security and significance, and we're unwilling to give those things up to really follow Jesus. And it becomes difficult to grasp the implications of all that Jesus is doing. But let me point out a couple things that I think need to be noted. First of all, there's a choice for any of us to follow Jesus. Jesus starts off saying, hey, whoever wants to come after me, he doesn't say you have to, he gives the choice to the individuals. And he's speaking both to his disciples and to the crowd. And he's saying, listen, the choice is yours whether you want to follow me or not. It's up to you. 
You, you can do it. You don't have to do it. Whatever that looks like, you can do it. But following Jesus is always about your personal choice. And following Jesus is always an ongoing personal choice. You have the freedom to follow Jesus or to not follow Jesus. But discipleship, if we want to use that term, or being a disciple of Jesus is ultimately following the person, even before you might even say his teachings. Because be you can't just pick up his teachings and say, I'm following Jesus. You have to follow the person. Uh, let me illustrate this way. It'd be like um, a couple who's got married, and you know, most, there, there's some exception to this, but most people who get married are deeply in love with another. Their emotions are off the chart, and when they stand up and do a ceremony, they're like really selflessly sincere that I love you, and it, whether it's high water, low water, whether it's fire or brimstone, I'm going to hang in there with you. And they make this great decision that I'm going to declare that my love for you and I'm, I'm committed to you. Then something happens after they get married and they start going from selfless love to build into your life to selfish like you're intruding on my space. And I don't know the reasons for all of them but I would bet anything to say that there's a lot of Christians who get divorced and marriages go right on the rocks because they go from selfless love to selfish ambition. And at some point, they're tired of fighting over who's more selfish than the other one, and they say, forget it, I'm done with this. Because every day that a couple gets up, they literally have to say, I'm deciding today that I'm going to follow you with all my heart, and I'm going to love you. And Jesus, in a sense, is saying the same thing. You want to be my disciple, it's great to make a decision, but every day you have to get up, and you've got to decide you're going to follow me. Because if you don't, and you kind of forget about it, the next day you may have some other distractions and before you know it you're going like, Jesus, how come you're not like fixing this stuff for me? How come, how come you're not serving me the way you ought to? Because like I already told you I loved you, why don't you do what you're supposed to do? Then everyone else around you pulls out the lightning rods because they don't want to get hit when the next response comes. But it's a personal choice. But the idea, if you want to come after me, is literally about standing behind someone. The picture in Luke chapter 7 is the woman who came into the Pharisee's home and stood behind Jesus at his feet and wept and poured out oil on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. She, she was standing behind him because she knew that was, in a sense, her place. And, and it's, it, it really becomes a picture that Jesus says, yeah, you're not taking the lead and I'm trying to rubber stamp all your dreams. You need to get behind me and follow me and do what I tell you to do. And that's really hard sometimes. But following Jesus is about giving him the leadership of our life and giving him first place. Because anything short of that is us trying to dictate to Jesus what he should be doing rather than him teaching us what we ought to be doing. And so Jesus makes this statement in verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I move from an idea of self-directed life to a submissive life. I move from a self-sufficient life to allowing Christ to be my sufficiency. I move from being self-absorbed life to being a Christ-centered life. 
I move from being a self-interest to learning how to love others. Because the danger is, is we all have mechanisms that want to preserve our life the way we want it to preserve. We want to protect ourselves. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you don't let go of that and you're going to trust me, I mean, after all, I did create you. The reason you even exist is because I am the architect of your life. I know how this should work. And it's like a, a three or four-year-old saying, you don't get to tell me what to do. Good luck with that. And so the consequences of following Jesus, I believe here begins with the great confession that Peter made. If we don't have a clear picture of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, he is God in the flesh, he is our Messiah and he is our Savior, he is the crucified Lamb of God who died and rose on the third day, if we don't recognize that clearly, then we're going to create our own God that we follow because it caters to our preferences. And we need to switch our alliances from saving ourselves to serving him. The very nature of salvation is that we cannot save our own life. And the only way to save it is that we lose or surrender it all. The words lose is literally the word for destruction. And so Jesus, when he talks about this consequence of discipleship or disciple making, is that the, the call and the invitation is there. You want to come after me, here's the three things that have to happen. You need to deny yourself, you need to take up your cross, and you need to follow me. Jesus is not selling this like we do it today. You know what happens today is, hey, buy our book, buy our product, we'll give you a 30-day money-back guarantee. I, that's not exactly the way Jesus is presenting this. Because Jesus isn't interested in us, in a sense, trying him out to see if it works. I'm either convinced that who he is, and I think he is the best wisdom for my entire life, or I keep running interference with my own sense of control. You know, the hard part about this is I'll come back to Bonhoeffer's statement. Only he or she who believes is obedient and only he or she who is obedient actually believes. I think he's resonating pretty closely with what Jesus said. If you claim to know Jesus and believe in him, then the next picture is, where's the obedience? Now, in risk of making this sound catastrophically overwhelming, which I don't know how it doesn't sound that way walking through this text, I, I want to give you a little encouragement that the idea of following Jesus sometimes can be a very small thing. Um, I did something this last week that I had never done in my life. I'm going through personal... Uh, Devotions is going through the Be Transformed book that comes out from Rock House. And they're really about discipling the heart. Well, this last week I was praying and working through uh, things and the pinnacle of my past issues have all been around my dad because I didn't think he, I made him proud and couldn't get his acceptance, all this stuff. So everything was revolved around that. And the last week I was sitting there in the couch and I was sitting going, 
why am I thinking so much about mama all of a sudden? And all of a sudden it clicked to me, and this sounds inherently wrong, that I needed to forgive my mom for some stuff. And the reason it sounds inherently wrong is my mom was the super spiritual hero of our family. She's the only reason why I'm in ministry, my brothers have a faith in Christ. I mean, she's the cornerstone, she's the rock, she's the spiritual giant of the family. To forgive her for something is absolutely inherently wrong. But what you don't know is my mom grew up in extremely rough circumstances in life. She wasn't valued in her family. She talks about stories of getting coal in a sock up in Thunder Bay area. When the other kids got toys, she got coal because she wasn't valued. The family was so dysfunctional, she got pulled away from her family by family services or whatever you call them back then, and she ended up being adopted. And the one phrase I heard all my life that we still have to deal with is, mom had this whole theology of, oh, and and you might have heard it before, but it's like, oh, I don't want to call them because I don't want to bother them. Well, I don't want to reach out to them because I don't want to bother them. Well, I don't want to go to that because I don't want to bother anybody. And I suddenly realized in my own head that I had learned a false picture of humility that was really wrapped around a really bad, poor self-image. But that's the way my mom learned how to handle the unworthiness she felt from everyone else. But the problem is, is she ended, I ended up taking that, whether it was her fault or not, and I sort of thought, well, humility means I don't matter. I don't want to bother people. I don't want to connect with people because I'm not worth it. And when I finally came to the realization that I forgave my mom for teaching me this bad, false picture of humility, there was something that changed in me this last week that kind of went, wow, it may seem wrong to forgive my mom because that's just insane, but God used it to change something in me that I'm still exploring to figure out, wow, you know what, I'm suddenly not reacting to some things that I get really irritated with because of that sense that I'm not worth it. And I want to challenge you that if someone comes up to you this morning and says, listen, how is God working in your life? How are you being obedient to him this week? Can you in tangible terms say, here's what God is doing in me. Here's how he's working. Here's where I'm trying to be obedient. Here's the things that God is speaking to me about. Because sometimes we have to take the smallest things and recognize God's at work and I'm being open and receptive to it rather than conquering the world. Because there's a something about that that says, all right, if I'm gonna come after Jesus, denying self doesn't mean making excuses or justifying things. It's being willing to be transparent and honest with God and my situation where I'm willing to be obedient to forgive or do whatever it has to be. But you and I both know you'll run into Christians their whole life who never apologize for anything ever because they're never wrong. Only he who believes is obedient and only he who is obedient believes. Let me ask you, do you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus? And even if you say yes, there's no reason to necessarily question that, but Do you have conditions upon what that's going to look like? Because Jesus makes it pretty clear that the person who wants to save their own life will lose it. 
Now, the first question you're going to ask is, well, does that mean salvation or sanctification? Like, I'll have a really miserable life, or I'm going to lose my salvation? What if I said yes? That didn't help, did it? Think of Jesus' words. Think about where your life's at. And is there anything the Spirit of God, even this moment, is reminding you of saying, hey, you know, you said you follow me, but you still haven't let go of this. You're still trying to save yourself because you're too embarrassed about that. You still won't admit that this really hurts you, and so you're trying to manage your pain rather than forgive people. Because disciple-making and following Jesus begins with, am I willing to let him change me first before he can do anything through me to change someone else? Father, the reality of following Jesus almost sounds cutesy to us in our 23rd century. We can rattle off the verse and we quote it all the time, and yet, Father, it's, it's worth our time every once in a while to pause and look at the words of Jesus and try to understand our life in measured to what he said. Sometimes we get ahead of ourselves because, well, I've been a Christian for so long and I haven't dealt with this in my life. I've been a Christian for so long and I haven't seen this clearly. And I pray, Father, that we would take the attitude that, Jesus, thank you for loving me so much that you're exposing something in my own heart and mind that I need to allow the Spirit of God to help me deal with. And by the very nature of your work in me, I can praise and celebrate you and your grace and your work in me because no matter how small it is, it's the clearest evidence of your love and my love for you. Father, help us to erase the caricatures that we have about what being a disciple is. It's not about a room or a particular Bible study. It's about being fully committed to look Jesus in the face and saying, I want to come after you and I'm willing to deny self and take up my cross and follow you. Father, we believe, help us very much in our unbelief, and for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.